Okay, so you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to James. And um, today we're going to start into chapter 2. I want to go ahead and get into it because I don't want us to bleed over too much. And um, I want to make sure that we get in everything that I want us to talk about this morning. Because I think what's very important, what you'll see this morning, is a, a really cool carryover from how we finished last week. And so just to kind of catch you up on where we were last week. So last week we were in James chapter 1 and we finished up that chapter. And the very last set of verses that we read last week were specifically talking about uh, our religion is how it puts it in the ESV. It may put it differently in a different version, but it says our religion and it's talking about our actions or the way that we worship God, the way that we celebrate God, the way that we are. And so we can we can know that when we talk about religion, we're not only talking about how we are towards God, but this also includes because God's word tells us that the whole body of the law includes this idea that it's not only how we treat and how we worship and how we edify or exalt God, but it's how we treat each other. Uh, because we see that as James finishes up James chapter 1, our, our kind of focus last week was this idea that our hearing and our doing are visible fruit of an active faith. And that is involved in how we approach God and that it's active and that it's not passive. And it's the driving force behind how we worship God and how we, worship, how we treat other people. And uh, James finished with this idea last week. And I just want to read these verses as we kind of, because I think this is such a powerful portion of the scripture and how it really connects us and carries us into, because once we begin James chapter two and finish out through the rest of the book, uh, this letter that James wrote to the church at, abroad that was scattered, uh, is that we'll see these very specific focuses on very practical things that we will in, in interact with or that that we will participate in from our day-to-day -day life. I mean, today we'll talk about, you know, as what we'll, we'll see what we'll talk about. And next week we talk about our faith and works. Uh, the week after that, we'll talk about our tongue. I can't wait for that week. I can't wait for that week because uh, that's going to really challenge us in the way that we speak about and to people. Um, it just gets very practical and he kind of breaks it down. And like I said, the book of James in its middle portion starts to lay out kind of like the book of Proverbs where it focuses in on these individual ideas and kind of teaches us some wisdom in the midst of it. And so I just want to read these verses in James chapter 1, verse, the, I don't have these on the screen, but James chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, just to kind of set the tone for where we're going as we get into James chapter 2. He says this, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled, which should be what we seek and desire, is to be religious in a sense that is pure and undefiled. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, acceptable to God the Father, is this. And James chooses to focus on this particular thing. He says this, to visit orphans, not only think about, pray about, but he says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see that the way James wraps up chapter one is he says this. Now I say wraps up chapter one. We have to understand when the Bible is written, it was not written with verses and chapters. It was just a continuous because it was always read from a scroll. And so it was just continuous lines. There was no verse or chapters. They broke it down like that. So it'd be easier for us to understand. But when we look at this, we see this continuation. We see this idea carry forward where James is shifting our focus, where the whole rest of the book is going to be this act of faith that comes from 
from. Remember, we've talked about the whole time our, per, our, our perspective determines our progress. And so he's talking about our perspective of other people and their worth and their value and how we treat them and how we see them and how we look at them. He's talking about orphans and widows specifically. And last week we talked about how little value they held in the culture at that time. Because as an orphan, a kid, he had no rights. Uh, he or she had no rights. Uh, a widow had no one to take care of her because she couldn't work. She had no rights. And so he's speaking specifically to people who were of need, who, who, needed, uh, who needed to be cared for, who needed to be thought about, who needed to be visited, who needed to have this intentional uh, love poured out on them. And then also he says unspotted from the world. And so the, this being unspotted from the world is this, uh, 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 this pursuit of holiness that God calls us to. And so he tells us this because he wants us to begin to, to really be challenged this morning. Okay, He wants to lean toward us and call us to self-evaluation of the reality of our faith. And of our faith, we have as a saving faith in the Lord Jesus as evidenced by our actions, not only our actions of how we're doing things, but even our reactions of how we're responding to other people and their opinions and who they are and how they're built and what they're doing, those type of things. And so then James shifts our focus here this morning as he continues this thought and this idea that are that are, are kind of sermon in a sentence like I've been I like to kind of have something that I hope carries us through this and something that we can remember by to kind of sum up what we're talking about this morning is this idea our sermon in a sentence is this it says the way I see and treat people should be a reflection of how God has been towards me how I see and treat people should be a reflection of how God has, seen, has been towards me. And I know that's very simple, but I think it's a very simple principle that God has laid out so clearly in his word. From the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, he has communicated this idea that we're going to see uh, this morning in, in the text here in James. And so what I hope that we can, we can find motivation for and that we can really understand is that our beliefs should influence our behavior. What we know about God and who God is, and we've said this time and time again. It should influence our behavior. It should influence the way we treat people. It should influence the way we act and respond to people. And James really shows us this here and, and begins to show us this in James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, as he begins to show us. And I think the reason he starts out with this as he begins to be real practical, because he sees this as one of the most vital things that us as believers can do and should be doing in our lives as Christians. So let's, let's just pray before I read James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. Let's pray really quick and just ask the Lord to speak to us through this text. Father God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for our time of worship. God, I thank you for the people who are here. God, I pray for those who aren't. God, and I, I just pray you keep them safe as they're working, as they're doing. Um, Father God, I pray that you just speak to us through your word. God, open our eyes, open our hearts to everything you have for us. God, and move through who we are. Father God, we love you. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I'd ask if you would read this with me this morning. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit there in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you, are really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing, a, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as we get into this text, I think it's very important that we establish two, that we establish three things. And this will be kind of the basis of our points this morning. But those th three things being what is is James telling us not to be doing? What is he telling us not to be doing? And in verse one, he makes that very clear to us. And I think this is very important that we see this. The first thing he says in verse two is he says, my brothers, show no parti partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, my brothers. And so he specifically, like we've said through this whole text, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He says to the church, my brothers, because he's recognizing a problem in the church that he says cannot be. He says, my brothers, you in the church do not show partiality. He's speaking to the church. And so he says, don't show partiality. So what does partiality mean? Partiality is favoritism. But specifically, as we continue through the text, we'll see a type of favoritism that is more in line with discrimination. He says, my brother, show no discrimination. Show no discrimin discrimination. And this idea of discrimination being withholding hospitality, friendship, kindness, love towards someone strictly based on an outward appearance or status. He's telling us don't treat someone who looks different than you, acts differently than you, thinks differently than you. Don't treat them as lesser. Don't treat them as lesser. And he is not saying, you know, what we have to understand, because a lot of times when we read texts like this, we automatically think, well, he just thinks that the poor are better than the rich. And that's not necessarily the idea. That's not what he's communicating. But he's talking about that as we're that as we see the rich and as we see the poor and as we continue on, we'll see this. That the law levels all that the law of God levels us all. And that. That are holding the faith and the treatment of others is directly connected and evidential of our experience of Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And so he's calling us to be of this mindset that is not treating people as lesser, that is not treating people as lesser than us or less important than us. Because the reality, if we're honest with ourselves, as we approach this idea, the reality is, uh, as he's speaking to the church and, and just focusing on Christians specifically, that we tend to lean towards people who are like us, right? We tend to lean towards people who are like us in social class. We tend to lean towards people who are like us in life experience. We tend to lean towards people who are like to us in race. We tend to lean to us that are like, uh, lean towards people who are like us in opinions because it's easier, right? It's more comfortable. We don't have to navigate conversations. We don't have to navigate ideas. We don't have to uh, have disagreements. We don't have to have these different things or be challenged in our life experiences because we're, we're being kind of drawn in or we're leaning towards people who are just like us. And so James is speaking directly to this idea. He says, don't be partial. Don't push people away from you who are not like you. 
And, and so something that I have to make clear is that he's not saying that it's wrong to build community with, with like-minded people. That's not what he's saying. We should be building community with like-minded people, people that do understand where we're at and do understand how we, how we move through this world. But the problem comes whenever this like-minded community becomes our comfort zone. And, and we all know, especially in church circles, uh, because we've either seen it or maybe even been, been a part of it and been, been sinful in that sense, is that this comfort zone can quickly become a click and this click can quickly become this place that seems inaccessible to anyone on the outside. It seems like there is no way for me to get into this because I don't fit into that circle of people or individuals or, or experiences or class or gender or race. He says that we, we can make people feel that way, that there's no way in. And that's that's what he's speaking to this, this kind of setting up this fence around myself or a certain group of people, that there's no place for anyone else to ever be integrated into that or ever even be influenced by that. And we see this as we move down to verse three, we see kind of this this positional assignment because of how someone lives or who they are, how they uh, how they are financially. He says in verse three, he says that you're telling them to sit here in a good place, talking to the rich. And then you're telling the poor he's used to telling them to stand over there or sit down. And so we have to understand about these synagogues. They were kind of these open spaces and these spaces would have had benches and there would have been limited seating. So he's kind of speaking to this idea that there are people that have come in and that have, they have there's limited seating. And so they're seeing people, judging people as they come in based off their appearance or based off their race or based off of who they are. And they're telling them, they're telling the well-to-do people, they're saying, hey, there's a spot for you. There's a good place. I love that in the text it even says this idea. He says that, you, that they're, you're paying attention, you, that if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, you're giving intentional attention to the one who looks like they have it all together, that looks like they have all the money, that looks like they're more well-to-do or they have a better status or they have this or that about them, it says that they're specifically assigning those people to a better place. And then to the one who doesn't look like that, the other side of it, he says that they're telling them to stand up, that you're not going to get a seat, that you stand over there, not only you stand over there, but he says you sit down, and in the text it says, you sit down at my feet. At my feet. You know, how heartbreaking is it that as, as a church that, that we tend to do this sometimes to people, that we make people feel like there's no place for you here with me on the equal level, but that your place is down at my feet because I'm more important than you. My opinions matter more than yours. My, 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 my struggles or, or, or what I do or what I think or what I say is more important than yours. Your place is at my feet. That's what they're saying here. Those people in the synagogue that he's talking about, the assembly, the gathering of those people, he says that he's telling them, your place is at my feet. This literal, like, kind of uh, distribution or, or, or assignment, kind of separating of people based on exterior representation. And Mark, the, the book of Mark, talks about this a little bit, specifically these type of people in Mark 12, 38 through 40. He says, and in this teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He's telling them, he's telling them that 
these people, that they look like they have it all together, but what they're, but it's not about how they look. It's about the representation of their affections for the Lord that aren't coming through accurately, that aren't being represented in how they are treating people. And so these are the type of people that he says they're getting the best seats because of how they look and kind of the pomp attitude that they have about what they've done or what they've accomplished. Because we know the Pharisees and Sadducees, those people were unbelievably intelligent they, they, and they were well to do. I mean, they, they had it all together. They looked great. They knew all the right answers. They would, many of them, they had to have the Old Testament, the old law memorized. I mean, they were just unbelievable people. But Jesus, so specifically here in Mark, he's, he's speaking against those people. He's telling, look, I don't care what they know. I don't care what they look like. That does not mean that they deserve the best seats in the house, literally and figuratively. And so continuing on, you know, not only is, is, are we understanding the what, what is he telling us not to fall into as a church, but then he's telling us why we cannot be this church. We cannot be these people. In verses 4 through 11, he kind of communicates this. In verse 4, he says this. He says, have you not then, because they've done this, made distinctions among yourselves and chosen those who are poor, made distinction among yourselves, sorry, and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, you, you talking about the church, the brothers that he addressed in the beginning, you have made distinctions. And he says, and you have become judges. You have elevated yourself to this place where you are sending down verdicts on people, deciding who people are based off of their outward appearance or what they have. You know, you began to set up division. You began to set up separation within the church. That's what he's saying. He says, you're doing this within the church based off of who pe how people uh, are presenting themselves. You know, and, and the, the, these judgments that he's talking about, you know, they tend to come from very selfish personal criteria rather than seeing people as how God sees them. You know, and, and I had this idea this week just thinking, you know, too often we apply a no shoes, no shirt, no service policy as our primary theology when dealing with people. You know, we have these very specific expectations and, 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 and view of how Christians or how church people or how we should look uh, as individuals or even outsiders coming in. Like, this is how you should look. This is how you should be. And if you don't fall into this category or this category, then you don't get the service of my attention. You don't get the love. You don't get the service. You don't get the, uh, the, the place where of a fellowship. You don't get that. You know, and in, and in reality, in this no shoes, no shirt uh, uh, attitude, you know, if you have if you don't have one or don't have the other. I mean, I haven't tried to go into many places with no shoes or no shirt recently. But, you know, if you go in barefoot, a lot of places, they're not going to show they're not going to serve you. You go into a restaurant, you try to go into Toucan shirtless, L2 can. They're probably not going to serve you, even if you have shoes on. And so for us as Christians, when we bring this mentality and where we have these these columns of people, of these columns of expectation, and it's like, well, they, they have this, but they don't have this. So we kind of push them off away from us. Even as individuals, there's people in our life that desperately need our interaction, but we keep them at arm's distance. We push them away because they either don't do this or they don't do this or they don't do both. And so we kind of keep them at arm's length. We don't allow ourselves to be influential in our on their lives because they don't fall into this category that gives us comfort. They don't fall within this fenced off comfort zone that we've created for ourselves as Christians. And so in a sense, we're showing partiality or favoritism or more so discrimination towards them because they're not the people that we think they should be to make us comfortable because they're not like me. 
They don't share my opinions, maybe, or they don't share my thoughts on certain things. You know, there's so much in our world, church. There's so much in our world that we allow to divide us and to separate us. There, there is not lack of things that we can be separated on. You can find so many things to call separation on, to be divided. So many lines in the sand that can be drawn. It is not hard to do that. You know, especially just thinking about uh, our, 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 our climate of our, of our world, you know, and just everything that's going on. Because the thing that we lose focus on, I think, the most is that the most important aspect of our lives is that we're taking active steps toward being molded into. That's what's our sanctification, this process that we live, not perfection, but a process of our life is this molding that God is doing in our life, molding us into the image and likeness of Christ. And that all else falls to the wayside, that everything else in our life is not important above political affiliation above social class, opinion, race, and gender, all those things fall to the wayside in comparison to us actively stepping into this molding process that Christ is wanting, God is doing with us to make us more and more and more like Christ every single day. That's God's intention with us. And nothing else matters because the separation, the division, all those things amongst ourselves is not the heart of God. That is not God's intention. That is not what God has wanted for us. God has not wanted Christians to be divided by who they vote for politically. God doesn't care about that. God does not intended for us to be divided by race. God is not intended for us to be divided by opinions. We can disagree on things and still have fellowship. We can disagree on things and still accomplish the work of God in our lives. And we see that God's heart is not to be partial, show favoritism or discrimination because we see it from the beginning to where we are in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords and the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial, takes no bribes. And he execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner or the outsider, giving him food and clothing. Job 34, 19, one of the oldest books of the Old Testament. He says, he who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Matthew twenty two sixteen in the New Testament. And they sent their disciples to him along the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions for you are not swayed by appearances. Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Specifically, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles in this text, but those people were, were the most different types of people that could have been different. And he said, I broke down everything to bring those people together so that there could be gospel unity within the, the, those people in that, in that culture. Romans 2.11 says, For God shows no partiality. The heart of God is not to divide. The heart of God is not to see us grab onto these opinions and these political stances and these different things that we're holding on to and cause division amongst ourselves. In verse 5, he tells us this. He says that he, he chose, verse 5, he says that he chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. God is doing something extraordinary with the outsiders, and he's been doing that from the beginning to the end. Now, does that mean that the, that the poor are more important than the rich? No, because we have to, what we have to understand is that when he talks about poor, he's not specifically just talking about those who are without means, those who are physically poor, who don't have money or don't have this or that. He's not just talking about it, even though he in 
includes that. He's also speaking of a spiritually poor, spiritually impoverished, those who recognize that they have a need deeper than what's around them, that they have a need within them. And the church should be made up of these people because he says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says they are heirs to the kingdom. That they are blessed, that they God will provide for them. And I'm we, if you're a Christian who has repented and understand that we have needs, then we fall into this category of spiritually impoverished. And so we have to understand that he's not elevating a certain social class above another. He's talking about kind of this collective, this playing field that we're all in need. Whether we have a lot or whether we don't, we, we understand that we all need a lot, whether it's monetarily or just the spirit of God providing us with sub substance in our life. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.26 kind of talks about this idea as Paul's talking to the church about how he's used those with little for much. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So he I love how he says not many of you because he's not saying not any of you. He says not many of you. So that includes some who are wise. That includes some that have, that have some wisdom and have some maybe some money. He says that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But he says that he's still using, he's using those who were of noble birth, those who were of power and those who weren't. But I love how God just looks to those, looks to the outsider, looks to those that understand they have a need and he wants to use them. First Corinthians 127, the next verse, he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Look, thank God in heaven that he does not look at me and show partiality away from me because of who I am, because I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I fall short. Even as, as a, doing this task, I mean, you know, preaching to you and, and, and our leadership and our volunteers, man, I, none of us are perfect. None of, none of any of us, if a holy God looked at us, if he was partial, if he did discriminate, I promise you, he would look at me and say, that one's not worthy. That one does not deserve my grace. That one does not deserve my mercy. That one does not deserve anything that I could do for him. But thank God that our text tells us that God is not partial. God doesn't care how much money we have. God does not care how much we've accomplished. Because thank God that when Jesus looked at Simon, he saw a rock and not someone who would be fearful you know, not someone who would flee and lie that he knew Jesus, not someone who would out of anger uh, chop off a guy's ear. But Jesus saw a rock in Simon Peter. Jesus saw a, a disciple in Matthew who was a who was a political leader at the time. But Jesus saw someone who would write one of the four Gospels. The disciples were amazed that Jesus would be talking to a sinful woman at a well. But what Jesus saw as a woman who, despite all the adultery she had committed in her life, Jesus saw someone who could be used to reach others with the gospel. And she did. Jesus saw beyond who she was to what she could accomplish for his good. That's what God is calling us into, to have eyes to see in that way. And this is not compromise that he's calling us to, but compassion. That's what drove Jesus was compassion and he was not compromising. This caused him to welcome them in. And when they trusted in him, then he forgave them and set them free. Continuing on, he says, but if 
in this word in verse 9, but if, could also be translated since, but since you show partiality. This is a sin he's saying, the church, you are committing. This, you're committing this sin, you're convicted of this sin, and we miss the mind of God when we choose to deal with people this way. When we see people for their outside appearance or their, what they portray to us and their opinions or what they speak from their mouth, he says when you treat people that way, we miss the heart of God to pursue what Jesus could, what God could really do with him. Because the thing we have to remember and we have to understand, and this really challenged me, is that Judas seemed like a much better leader than Peter would have ever been. Judas managed all the money, right? Judas kept track of the finances. Judas was there before Peter. Judas was doing all this stuff. He was accomplishing all these things. And Judas would be the one who would betray Jesus. And even Peter would, would flee but Peter would under, but had a heart that was just leaned into the work of God, even in his fear, even in his faults. It's not about how it's perceived. It's about breaking through that to the heart. In verse 10, we have to understand the weight of this sin, though, and that's, that's why he calls us away from this. Because he says there in verse 10, he, he begins this idea of talking about the law. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. And I believe he says this because a lot of times we would think that maybe this isn't such a big deal. I don't murder. I don't cheat on my, my spouse. I don't do this. I don't do this. So surely that's okay if maybe if I just discriminate a little bit against a people or a race or a social class of people. But he says, he says, if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the law in every place and become a trans aggressor against the law that it's just like as if you hit a window with a hammer in the corner it's going to shatter the whole window if you if you break someone's arm it's going to injure the entire body and so he's telling us that if you've broken the law in one sense if you've broken the law because you've discriminated or you've been a racist or you've treated people wrongly because they make less money than you or because they're, they're they have different opinions than you he says you've broken the entire law he says it doesn't matter who they are He's drawing us to this idea of understanding the weight of this sin. And so the last thing he tells us to hear, and we'll finish up this morning. The last thing he tells us is how he calls us to be. How he calls us to be in light of this. To not show partiality or favoritism or discrimination. In verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You know, I may not like the way someone speaks. I may not like someone's habits. I may not want to maybe necessarily be have an intimate friendship with someone. But Christian love, Christian love, this agape intentional love is treating others the way God has treated me. God forgave me in my sinfulness. God saw my failures and faults. Saw beyond that to see something that he could do with me. And he sees the same thing in us. God calls us to this mindset. He tells us that, that it, is an, it is an act of the will, that it's not an emotion. That the way we treat people is an act of the will. That, I, that, I, that my emotions may tell me to push this person away, but the will of God within me tells me that this person desperately needs me to lean into their life. Not because they're lesser than me, but because of the Spirit of God within me, I have something to offer them. I have something to bring to them, despite who they are, what they look like, what race they are, what they've accomplished or what haven't they accomplished in their life. The mo and in the motive of that is to glorify God. Because it's by leaning into the poor in our life, whether it's poor spiritually or poor physically, by leaning into that space, we are glorifying God in this law of liberty that he talks about. This is the gospel that he tells us to, as we're living under, live as those, act as those, speak as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This law of liberty is the gospel. 
He says to live in a way as if people who are under the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died for your sins, for my sins, and that he bore my sins on the cross. And he tells us that live your life, speak, act in a way that is reflective of you being under the law of liberty. The gospel, the freeing gospel that has taken the bondage of sin off of us. That we don't have to be partial to people anymore. I don't have to be prideful towards people anymore. I don't have to measure myself up against people anymore. I don't have to try to be better than anybody else. I don't have to try to be more successful than anybody else. I don't have to be any of these things because I live under the law of liberty. I live under the gospel of freedom now. It doesn't matter how people see me. And so then I don't have to treat people. I don't have to see people a certain way because God sees me as free under the law of liberty. Under the gospel, it's the power of the gospel unto salvation for those who would believe. Because we rest under this gospel message. Putting ourselves in their place, seeing others as God sees us. Because the thing is, when Jesus Christ came, he submitted himself to this level. And it's prophesied long ago. And and what's a beautiful thing is this text in Isaiah is one of the oldest texts in the New Testament. And it's one of the manuscripts that we have the most proof Exist and was written in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, such a beautiful prophecy about Jesus. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as of one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus Christ came as the very person that that James is telling us to not show partiality towards. Jesus submitted himself to to be as the poor, to be as the needy, to be as one who had no no exterior majesty or pomp about him. He said Jesus looked like he had nothing, but internally what he offered was everything. He offered everything. He calls us to have gospel temperaments or gospel frame of mind that our conversation would be gospel conversation. And because in in verse 13, he tells us this mercy, showing mercy triumphs over judgment. That there is no judgment that we offer in anyone's life that accomplishes anything for them. Now, does that mean that we never judge? There is, a, there is a way at which we judge and rebuke each other that is out of love, and that's not necessarily what we're speaking of in this moment. So I'm not saying that there is absolutely no judgment that we never do for anyone, each other, but there is a judgment that is a casting down of a verdict that he's telling us that mercy, showing mercy, triumphs over judgment. And the thing is, mercy is not earned. I did not earn mercy. If you're a believer here this morning, you did not earn mercy and it is not deserved. It can only be given. He is calling us to give mercy because it is triumphant. It is victorious. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Not only in my life, but in the lives of others. And in our lives lived in this way is an invitation to greater things for someone else. That's what he's calling us to, to not show partiality, favoritism or discrimination against someone based off of how they look or their opinions or, or, or their race or all these things that even in our current culture are so divisive, are so divisive. And so what do we do? And then we'll be done this morning. That first off, that as a, as a believer, we understand that the law levels us all. That under the law, we are all fallen. 
We are all sinners in desperate poverty, spiritual poverty for, for a Savior. You know, we'll all be in different classes socially. We'll look different, act different, have different opinions. But it is not a means at which separates us. The Bible tells us in Philippians that it's the Holy Spirit that unites us, regardless of who we are or where we've come from. And to understand this, in 1 Peter 17 through 19, it says, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, does not take into account the deeds, but judges impartially to those who call on Jesus as Father. Each one's conduct, according to each one's conduct, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. That your, your ransom was not paid with perishable things. Your ransom was not paid with money. Your ransom was not paid with accomplishments. Your ransom was not paid with what you could do for someone else. But your ransom was paid such, not such as with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. That Jesus died the same blood for each of us, the same, the same amount, the same suffering, the same hurt for each one of us, church. And he's called us to, to live our life from that perspective, working from that victory and how we treat people, see people, speak to people in our life. To not show partiality, to not show favoritism or discrimination. And understand that we are in need. I love this quote from F.B. Meyer, a theologian. He says, the rich man may trust him, but the poor man or the person in need, spiritually or physically, the poor man must the poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. That we would rest in Christ and invite others to rest in Christ in the same way, regardless of who they are, how they've thought, or what they've accomplished or what they have in their life. Church, I pray that we could be a people, as we've said in the beginning, be a people that see and treat people the way we should as a reflection of how God has been towards me. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you this morning that you've called us to something bigger and better than ourselves. God, I thank you that you reveal to us the truth of your word that is rooted in the gospel. God, this gospel that levels all things. God, this gospel that doesn't matter who I am, this gospel that doesn't matter where I've been or what I've accomplished. God, this gospel that doesn't look at any one of us for our status and culture and society. God, with our opinions that may or may not be flawed or broken, that in some way, shape, or form is flawed or broken. God, that, that you don't care about the, the politics of it all. God, that you don't care, uh, Lord, what our skin color is. God, you don't care about any of these external things. God, that you tell us you are seeking our heart. God, you are seeking a heart that is drawing towards you that it recognizes its need for a Savior. God, need of something beyond what can be given to me. So, Father God, I pray this morning. God, I pray this morning that Cross Point Community Church, that us as individuals, as Christians here this morning, God, in any, every church, Christian, God, Bible-believing church in our community, Lord, that we could be a people, a Christian faith, God, that is not discriminating against individuals, that is not pushing people away, God, is the, that is not setting up fences around ourselves that seem so impenetrable that people can't come and find a refuge amongst God's people, find comfort amongst God's people, find acceptance among God's people, find, find just joy and peace and instruction and, and encouragement in the Word and amongst God's people. God, let us not be, God, let us not be a people 
of comfort zones and complacency and clicks. God, let us not show partiality towards people because of who they are or what they've done. God, let us love people. God, let us show love towards people. God, let us share the gospel with people because, Lord, you tell us that's the power of salvation. Lord, that is the power of salvation. Father God, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to allow us to marinate in our hearts and work in our lives. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.